I'm drinking coffee and it's like six six forty p.m. Hey, I'm on Eastern time, so it's seven forty for me, man. Oh okay. no, you're back in the real time. I, That's I the real time. No, this is Central time zone. This is the, pri- like, the prime, the prime uh, zone. The <laughs> like, I couldn't. I don't know how I would handle being in the central zone if, like, we watched network TV, like, like, mm-hmm. like back in the olden days. Yeah, because like, because before it was everything started at eight. Mm-hmm. All the shows started at eight. So you 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 get home from school, you you would have dinner, and by the time dinner's over, the shows start. But here, you get off work or school at the same time we do in the Eastern time zone. But show, but everything starts at seven, and normally we wouldn't eat dinner until like seven. Uh huh. Well, I mean, Better Call Saul doesn't start till nine, which is literally the only show, the only TV show I've watched airing live since I can't even remember the last show I did that for. Because they're in the last season, they're in the home stretch now. Uh, well, our show is all about time zones now. Yes, welcome to time zones. The time zone show. Welcome to welcome welcome to time. Well, time zone. zones are important for stagecoach uh, uh, schedules, mm-hmm. which include you know mm-hmm. justice. And yeah. and, and, and when were the justice time zones implemented? Stagecoach. I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna look up when the time zones are implemented. <laughs> you guys vamp while I do that. God, how amazing would it have been if the universe of monsters teamed up with the Stooges instead of like <laughs> Abbott and Costello? And Costello. Like, instead, there's three of them instead of two, and only one. It's really funny. I mean, I appreciate uh, Abbott and his and his straight manness, and sometimes he was funny, like legitly funny. But I love the Stooges too. I want the, I want ever I want all those comedy teams to team up with the universe of monsters. Time zones. Time zones were developed by Sir Sandford Fleming in 1878. Okay. So we need to go. We, first of all, we need to go back and re-record. Welcome to Stagecoach Justice <laughs> theme song. <laughs> we have to redo everything. This changes everything. <laughs> we have to figure out when these movies take place and then triangulate it down to the. Yeah, we got to figure this out. All right. Here's the thing, though. They weren't. They didn't start using them until 1883, and it was for the railroads. Mm-hmm. It was November 18th, 1883. But they weren't a stat. The times weren't established until 1918. Okay. Okay. You're welcome, uh, listeners. Or is the theme song still playing? Oh, I'm cutting all. Okay. Of you all of it. You really should. This is like the best, most useful content we've ever had on the show. But okay. Uh, maybe I'll keep it. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Welcome to Stagecoach Justice, everybody. Welcome to Stagecoach Justice. Welcome to the Stagecoach called Justice. I'm Justice T. Eli. Pew, 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 pew. I'm uh, An- pew. Uh, Stagecoach Andrew Ford. Pew, pew, pew. You, you guys took all the things <laughs> from the name. You could be both. 
be Justice uh, T stage. Your deputy, Josh. deputy sheriff. You're just Josh. Yeah, yeah just Josh. Yeah. That's just Josh. <laughs> a, you're definitely like the prospector of us. You have a nice little. Is it because my beard? Gray beard. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure you're wearing a onesie with a flap down right now. Little skulls <laughs> on it. I could see that. It has a, it has yeah. the onesie vibe. Uh, welcome. We're continuing our further adventures of Audie Murphy. Yes. Y'all pumped? Y'all pumped and excited for these? These are some great. These were these are the some of the movies that you know. I recommend everyone to watch. These are very good. Uh, they're, they're, they're in circulation. They're available. They're worth picking up. They're good. Are they as good as the Jimmy Stewart, Anthony Mann movies? No. Very few very few movies we're ever going to cover from from then on aren't. We probably started on the wrong point. <laughs> but I think these are just solid, solid, like pure studio studio B picture. Uh, uh, B pictures are weren't, weren't like low. They were just lower budget movies made by big studios we're not talking about poverty row that's different um Mm -hmm. but these are just good studio entertaining films uh we're covering um the kino uh kino lobre uh uh annie uh, Annie milligan uh (laughs) audie murphy collection yeah with uh what what are the titles it's the duel at silver creek directed by don Mm -hmm. siegel uh hell yeah right from 19 from 1952 uh, Ride a Crooked Trail from 1958, directed by Jesse yes. Hibbs. Uh, Hell yeah. And finally, bringing up the rear here, only, uh, only chronologically though, is uh, No yeah. Name on the Bullet from 1959, directed by Jack Arnold. Yeah, and probably his best movie, I would say. Well, he's made a lot of really good movies, actually. Just not yes, a ton of, yeah, not but, a ton but, of western. Like very different in variety. Yeah. I mean, he did The Creature from the Black Lagoon. We'll get to it. We'll yes. get to it. We'll get to it. Okay, so um, before we get into all that stuff, what you watching? Um, I watched the black and white version of Nightmare Alley on HBO Max. Uh, it's Nightmare okay. Alley: A Vision in Darkness and Light. I don't know if it yeah. if I if I thought it was better because it's in black and white or just because it plays better a second time around. But I I think it's easily Guillermo del Toro's best movie. It's incredible. I love it. I want to watch it again right now. Okay. Well, why don't you? Well, I hang out with my friends who I haven't seen. Got to record. I, I haven't seen you guys in a while. <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's true. Well, you moved and you moved and you're in a different area. I moved to a. Di- we established like, this earlier. Like, I don't know <laughs> when to call and talk to you <laughs> anymore. At what's the appropriate time? You might have cut it out, but I moved to a different time zone, and they're making me wear polo shirts every day now. So. We can go further in depth on oh, both of those things. Oh, you have to wear a polo shirt? Because you used to wear polo shirts before. Yeah, I used and, to do it for know. fun. Boy, what a waste of time, you know. what? Uh, spin all those bullets, you know. Like, I could have been wearing more comfortable. I mean, these they're comfortable shirts. I don't like collars as much. Mm-hmm. I don't mind collars. Anyway. I don't like on it. On shirts. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so what, 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 I, what, what have I been watching, I wonder? Um, I've been going through Barney Miller. I'm on season five of Barney Miller right now, which is great, which I was surprised they have an ongoing storyline and like definitely in season four, because I just started season five and it's like, it's, it's all about like one of the characters is trying to find an apartment. Like that, that's the ongoing storyline they have in between. And I don't know, it's just that Barney Miller is a great show. I, I love Barney Miller. Um, I, I just, I haven't watched it all like, I don't know if I ever seen the very last season, but 
I haven't watched it in years, and I was just something to put on as right before I go to bed. And I've been loving it. And then today I watched. Uh, I've been uh, watching the. I decided to watch the Mission Impossible movies. Okay. So I started with the, my what I consider the first one, which is uh, part three. <laughs> I just watched. I'm just gonna watch three on because one and two is fine. I don't. Those are ones like I like the first one. The second one's the worst one of all of them. Uh, I just don't really want to rewatch those. To me, they're not as like re- they're not as they're not they're not as fun stunts action spectacles like the other ones are. True, I I, I think there's a a pretty good argument that the first one is the best one still. But no, I I, I don't. That's fu- That's fair. <laughs> they became different movies on three. They, well, they I'd did. Like yeah, those ones better. <laughs> they totally did. Yeah. Um, they also became more like actual Mission Impossible, where it's all about. It's all about doing certain particular because uh, the show itself missions was they're missions, doing missions. And stunts mm-hmm. yeah essentially like they just have one big kind of heist type thing they're doing where they got to trick something and that's what those became about there's more of the spectacleness of of the show because um, I watched the show before and it's uh they're really the shows yeah good. I watched some of this there's a really nice Blu-ray set of the show it looks amazing yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Probably better than it's ever I, looked b- before. It's definitely the show got the, had a, it had an original guy the lead on it, and he was an Orthodox, he was Orthodox Jewish, and um, he he had like, but he was like strict or or Orthodox, so they had issues with the uh, scheduling with him. So then they replaced them with Peter Graves, which is kind of a dick move on the studio. Yeah, right? it is. It is, but I like Peter Graves better in that role, so it's like, <laughs> bleh. like, I don't know. Uh, those are fun movies. Yeah. I I, I yeah. recommend uh, these big blockbusters that you should have already seen. I watched uh, Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins. Okay. How, okay. how is that? It's fantastic. They make you want to go to Rafferty's, the restaurant? It made me want to listen to Jerry Rafferty. Okay. You can do both. We, we can do all did three. It make you, did it Rafferty's make you want to watch Gold Dust, old Gold Dust wrestling matches? Matt, hell yeah. yeah. I'll bet. What else... I I didn't I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> you don't know about gold dust? No. Oh man, this is a generation <sighs> gap exposing itself. No, no, he just wasn't like. I bet he was too busy like listening to Mazzy Star to watch wrestling in that, in that <laughs> time period. You're not wrong. He's too busy like stuff is stupid. <laughs> like, I assume that's what you were in the '90s, late '90s. You were like everything's stupid. No, there was some cool stuff. Spawn. Spawn was cool in the late yeah. 90s. Oh, I, I love the Spawn live action movie. Pfft. Well, up and up until then. It was <laughs> Actually, cool. I generally loved that movie when it came out. But me and my dad used to watch the HBO animated one, and we loved it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then, but we watched the movie, too, and still enjoyed it, because we didn't know better. Mm-hmm. I honestly, I thought the director on the Spawn, the live action Spawn movie, I thought that name, it's Mark A.Z. Uh, Dip or, or Dippe. I don't know how you say it. I think there might be an accent on the end. I thought he might have been like a pseudonym, like a like an Alan Smithy, because that was around the time they retired Alan Smithy. But no, he's actually mm-hmm. a special effects guy. And I think he worked on like the Jurassic Park movies. So he's actually really accomplished. Okay. He's just, you know, he directed that particular movie. So Rafferty and the Goldust Twins is uh, like this very shaggy road movie starring Alan Arkin, Sally Kellerman, and Mackenzie Phillips uh, as Rafferty and the titular Goldust Twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a great hangout movie. Like I wanted to 
it's actually a better pairing with licorice pizza than I thought it would be down to the fact that there's a, uh, a sequence of a car going downhill that can't stop. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Is it, is it said is Rafferty and the gold dust twins? It's not a period piece or is it a, no, I, I thought it I was did at too, first. Yeah. I thought it was like going paper to be. moon or something. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's, uh, what is it? 75. I thought it was like a exploitation film. That's what I thought it mm-hmm. was. But I guess nope. it's not. Oh, okay. Because it sounds like, title-wise, it sounds like it fits in with, like, the Dixie Dynamite Chase or... Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. The Great Bikini Car Wash. No, that's not an exploitation movie. That's a beach party movie. You don't know a fucking thing about beach party you don't movies, know. you son of a bitch. <laughs> I did. I started watching them. I started watching them. You shut it. your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let, let let's get into it. we we've been around too long. Uh so let's continue. Uh so doing Audie Murphy. So I want to get into uh where we left off in the adventures of the life and adventures of Audie Murphy. Um you guys remember where we left off? He was uh in the army. Now he was in the army now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, so he was in the uh see so his 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 mother his mother died in his arms, and then there's that really touching thing you said about her. And then he joined the, he lied about his age, joined the military, joined the army, and he went for basic training. Now, uh, he's stationed in Italy. Okay. While in Italy, uh, he was part of the B Company, which is the third, third infantry division, division, which was under the command of Patton. Was he the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B? Um, that is, that is indeed the company they were talking about in that song, though. Yeah. The, uh, um, Anderson Sisters? Andrew's sisters, I believe. Andrew's sisters. Yep. And, Andrew? Sisters? Andrew's sisters. No, the, uh, the Andrew's sisters, no relation. Okay, because... Andrew's was their last name, yeah. Yes. So, so you're related. Um, Andrew, Andrew so Murphy, is my first name. Thank you. Is it? Welcome to States Coast Justice. <laughs> this is Andrew Ford. Uh, so, uh, 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 Murphy was promoted to the rank of corporal on... Uh, on uh, July fifteenth of nineteen forty three, yes, forty three, uh, and then he uh, he met at East uh, there when he was stationed in the in uh, Italy. He met uh, East Tennessee native Laddie Lipton, which became super super close friends. They became best friends, and he actually said, "In in the military, you kind of uh, you kind of form very close childlike friendships." You know how you, you know, when you're a kid and you, you just meet a kid that happened to be your age, you're like, we're best friends, like instantly. And then, like, you never see or hear from him ever again. It's like that 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 really strong bond you get on day one and only day one. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And it is it is sad. It's a very fast and kind of because it, it this friendship can end at any moment. And the, the, that is very much how relationships in the, the, the war start. It's either you have this in, instant bond. Or you ignore them in every possible way, is not get close. That is, I think that's the two camps you go in, and sometimes you do both. Um, and then Lipton received letters. Uh, he had a, a daughter. Um, he was he was older than um, uh, Murphy, and he had a daughter that was a few years old that was like I think young enough to write letters. And he would, and she would always write letters to him. And and Murphy didn't really see, he didn't really receive or send letters a lot, so he would tend to 
read them a lot and kind of seen kind of seen him as like Lipton's family as his own family a lot of times. Uh to the point like it actually affected like when they would go on uh when they go on various missions and stuff, he would like make sure like Lipton was safe as can be. And he would, he would volunteer himself over him a lot of times, um, which shows how like protective he kind of was, um, uh, during fighting and, and then during fighting in Sicily, uh, uh, Murphy became more realistic towards military duty. He says, he says, I've seen war as it actually is. And I do not like it, but I go on fighting. So he, he, kind of you kind of change your tunes a lot a lot of soldiers tend to do when they see really hard stuff um when sicily was secured by uh uh was Sicily secured from access forces supreme commander general dwight d eisenhower made a decision to invade italy in early september of 1943 when the early skirmishes uh recounted by author don graham involved murphy uh his and his best friend uh tipton which in the book they referred to him as brandon which really threw me off and to Helen back, it's like, they keep talking about Brandon and his daughter. And I was like, but I thought that was Lipton. Because I'm like reading two books. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, it's I'm like, who are they talking? And he changed his name. They changed names of people in the to Helen back. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is understandable. Mostly since that was such an early book memoir of war, too. Like, that was, yeah. well, the book came out in the 40s. So, I mean, it was still like, they're still figuring out how to write nonfiction, I think. Uh, so, uh, Lipton and, uh, and an unnamed soldier in their unit traveled along the, uh, 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 Varanto River. The trio were near a bridge when a third soldier was killed by German machine gun fire, which he described that pretty graphically. He, he tends to, yeah, he, he's pretty graphic on, uh, Murphy was in, in tail and back describing some of the, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then, uh, Lipton tossed hand grenades into the direction of, the fire and and Murphy responded with a Thompson machine gun, killing five German soldiers, which made which promoted him to sergeant. And by this time, the third infantry d- division had suffered heavy casualties, with six hundred eighty-three dead, hundred seventy missing, and two hundred uh, and two thousand four hundred twelve uh, wounded. So this was like a lot of the Italy warfare was trench based, where they had just the trenches and a lot like war one style. So it was a lot of like, he was talking about stories about like hearing, uh, wounded German soldiers. They had held, held prisoner, like slowly dying. And he said they were, they were speaking in their ghostly words is what he said hmm. to each other. And it was mostly just like, like pain. They were just speaking in just Oof. death rattles. Yeah. It's, it's, it's some pretty, it's pretty rough ship. And then they were involved in amphibious landing uh, when they was for the NZO beachhead. But then he, he and he was uh, made sec- uh, section leader and promoted to staff sergeant in January of that year. But then he was hospitalized for malaria, unable to participate in the landing. Um, but then he uh, when he returned to his unit, it was the fr- it was the unsuccessful first battle, which they had a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy casualty. It was the most fierce uh, and sustained fighting uh, Murphy had experienced to date. Uh, if the suffering of the men could not do their job, the German lines would split open wide. Replacements could not keep the the pace with the slaughter, uh, and some of the companies have been reduced to 20 men during this battle. Uh, not a yard of ground has ever been 
gained by the uh, murderous three days of assault. It was a doom-like quality hangs over the beachhead. Yeah. Um, the men were forced back to NZO and remained there for months, taking shelter in an abandoned farmhouse. Um, there, the uh, artillery fire disabled a German tank. Although the crew was killed as they escaped, uh, Murphy knew that the tank could be repaired and the Germans could be uh, put into uh, could put it back into use, leaving the men in the farmhouse. So Murphy advanced towards the tank, crawling on his stomach, where he used rifle grenades to permanently to uh, permanently put the tank out of commission. And for this action, he received a bronze star. So I mean, that's oh yeah, some pretty yeah. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like action movie <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> no, seriously. I guess I didn't know um, what the bronze star was for exactly. Is it just for uh, moments of like heroic acts? Heroic yeah, that, acts, yeah. Almost, almost uh, every medal's for that. Well, some are for specifically for like getting wounded or whatever, or like you know. Being and the purple in star action, is yeah. for that. Yeah, purple star is for that. Purple heart. Mm-hmm. Purple heart. That's right. Um, uh, Murphy continued. Uh, Murphy continued making, continued to make scouting patrols to take German prisoners before being hospitalized again for malaria. Kept getting that malaria. It's like COVID. Well, well, it's just when you're when you when you part of battle fatigue when you have that is that it's just your your break your your whole body's breaking mm-hmm. down, so you're just more susceptible to any illness. Yeah, because you're just like you're at your wits end, and the only thing that's really keeping you going is just is just pure survival. And the fact he's able to do any like battle tactics while doing that is 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 pure amazement. So. I mean that that's a, the cinch of it. The, uh, he and he got promoted after that, and then they did some lot more training around that time period. Um, so th- and that's and then he was uh, eventually uh, he was made platoon sergeant uh, as they were leaving. Uh, yeah, he helped he helped them he helped enlist them in push back. Uh, he received another bronze star for some of the for just fighting in Enzo itself. And then after Rome was uh, liberated, uh, he was uh, made pl- platoon sergeant. And then they moved out of Italy in 1944 on the way to France. And that's where I'll conclude next week. Next week will be the end of his war stuff, and then I'll get into more of his after war. But yeah, his war stuff is pretty crazy. And this was such a dense, like, I thought I could explain uh, the I- Italian war front. <laughs> In like fucking five minutes, and I realized, nope, I can't. It's just, it's a lot of dense stuff that I just couldn't. Like, it's such, so much. It, it, I can understand why, like, war stuff is really hard to cover in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, and what made his book so good is just the personal stuff he was talking about. And that's not stuff that I can, like, oh, he, he was sad when a guy died. Like, that's, that's hard also for just to, give out in this in this, this little bit i don't know how much of that will be, but okay that's all <laughs> i have on him for this week no i mean that's uh it sounds like we're building up to the big you know i'm assuming yeah france and the rest of his war uh actions are going to be you know what he's the big most known for the big takeaway from all of this was he he was getting promoted for there's a little bit of acts that you know some crazy stuff he was doing from for the most part um, he had his, he, he had his best friend by his side, Lipton, and they were just going through hell in these trenches, try to, try to, uh, try to move in their way through Italy to, um, 
help uh, liberate Rome, which he did not like Rome. <laughs> he thought okay. Rome was a terrible place. Okay. But granted, he also said that was because he just gone through fucking hell and mm. was not in the best of moods. <laughs> so it, it was just like, and when they got there, they didn't have like, no, there was no resources. There was no aid. There was nothing. Yeah. So they were just like, it was the same old same. So he was like, oh, Rome sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Tough beat for Rome. <laughs> yeah. Well, not a lot of people talk about Italia or Italy in uh, World <laughs> War II. So, I mean, it's. Yeah. Most most people talk about France and Germany, like when they got there. Mm-hmm. It's a very forgotten part of the war. Italy's like, oh, they hung Mussolini from his ankles in, in, in the town square and his mm-hmm. mistress or whatever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about, let's get into the movie stuff, because we wasted too much time. <laughs> uh, hey, Andrew, why don't you give us a little synopsis on The Duel at Silver Creek from 1952? From Don Siegel, legendary director of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Lineup, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, Dirty Harry... Uh, Charlie Varick and the Shootist comes this two-fisted, action-packed western starring celebrated war hero turned movie star Audie Murphy. Stephen McNally is Lightning Tyrone, the quick-drawing marshal of Silver City, who's intent on capturing a ruthless gang of claim jumpers that have been terrorizing and murdering local miners, including his best friend. After losing the use of his famed trigger finger in a shootout, Lightning deputizes the sharpshooting Silver Kid, played by Audie Murphy, whose own father was killed by the gang, to help bring the outlaws to justice. Uh, co-starring Susan Cabot, uh, Faith uh, Domergue, although I think it's said differently because I listened to the commentary, but I don't remember how he said it, and screen great Lee Marvin in one of his first screen appearances. That's The Duel at Silver Creek from 1952. Yeah. Yes. He's reading that off the back of the Blu-ray. You're goddamn right, Kino I am. <laughs> I wish Kino would sponsor us. So that'd be it great. It would be fantastic. But then they'd have to send movies to three different people. Send like new releases and stuff to like three different places if that was the case. They're gonna send it here, and I'll send them out. You already have them all. <laughs> That's true. I'll just go over to Eli's and watch yeah. them because mm-hmm. I still live locally. Yeah. All right. Well, enough about enough about me. Let's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's up first? Writers? Who's up first? Writers? For the duel at Silver Writers. Creek. Josh, we tell about Why don't you do yeah, some Yeah, where'd this come from? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, fuck you. So, uh, <laughs> it was based on a story and co-written by Gerald Drayson Adams. Mm. Uh, Adams, he was a literary agent before he became a screenwriter, so he had, like, lots of experience uh, with editing and reading and turning things around pretty quickly and not actually writing well it says here in my notes that he was a prolific writer so uh his earliest credit was in 1941 have you guys heard of a girl a guy and a gob with ryan reynolds in the pizza place a girl a guy a gob and a pizza place yep is this like a new like dating app or something. What's the gob? I, I don't know. Gob, That's, do I don't know what the kids I'm, are doing these I'm days. I'm worried that I've said gob like seven times <laughs> and it might be a slur of some is it, sort. Is it actually pronounced Job? A jurl, a giant, a joke. 
Well, please continue. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, he he also wrote Harem Scarum and Kissing Cousins, which were both uh, Elvis movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't he write wrote... Clambake, did he? No, he did not. That's Those are the only two Elvis movies he did. Um, which, for some reason, Kissing Cousins went on my watch list recently, and I don't remember putting it on there. Did Joe Bob talk about it? Pro- probably. Is... Okay. Unless, did you go see, is it a big part of the Elvis movie? I still haven't seen it. I haven't either. No, I haven't either. Um, we talked he... about go seeing it. But... but Wednesday night was the best night for me. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, he did write on multiple television shows. Uh, he wrote a bunch of scripts for Maverick uh, and Surfside Six, which is pretty cool. All right. It was co-written by Joseph Hoffman. Hoffman, also prolific. Dude wrote 57 movies before he headed to television. Uh, I've heard of none of them, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but the television shows. What's this guy name again? J- Joseph Hoffman. As in the tales, for, tales of Hoffman. Sure, I'm looking him up. Okay, I'm gonna spell his name. I don't know how to spell anything. Um, he wrote uh, television shows I'm familiar with: Michael Shane, Leave It to Beaver, Bonanza, and the Patty Duke Show. Oh, so uh, and Love American Style as well. Yeah, he, it says here he wrote the Duel at Silver Creek. I know that one. Oh, oh, he wrote Country Ju- uh, Country Gentleman, which was an Olsen and Johnson movie, which is the guy did uh, oh. those the comedy team that did Hells and Poppin', which is great. Yes. Okay. I love me Hells. They didn't he didn't write Hells and Poppin'. I was curious if any of these I've actually heard of. Um oh, he did some with uh, the Joneses family and Hot- yeah, that's with Buster Keaton. Oh. Okay. All right. Yeah. He did Shooting High. Yeah. Pew, pew. I've heard of that. Uh, it's a it's a western. I haven't seen it, but okay, yeah. He uh, it's a lot of oh, uh, there's uh, yeah. He's he. It looks like he did a lot of script punch ups. Yes. Yeah. Like additional dialogue stuff like that. He's just a good studio writer. So yeah, that's all I've got about those guys. There, apparently, they lived very boring lives, but. That will be made up by one of the other writers, so <laughs> I'm feeling good about that. Oh, you're talking about Board and Chase. No, I'm not talking about Board and Chase. You've talked about Board and Chase. <laughs> You've done all the Board and Chase. You've chased all the Bordens. Uh, where does that take us next? Are we going to talk about the cast or are we going to talk about the director now? Okay, so, fuck. Um, uh, I... Oh, this is the good one? Oh, God, it is. I uh I was gonna just talk about a little bit of the other actors just briefly, and I was like, oh, and a lot of times I just pick a random like whatever like an actor and actor in a movie that we that I like that it's like okay I'll do some research. So I decided to pick uh Jane Dusty Fargo, which is play which is played by uh Susan uh Cabot. uh Cable Cabot? I think it's just Cabot. And um, I just just went to Wikipedia, just kind of do some brief little research. I'm just gonna write a little bit of a little bit about what she did, some movies she did, and I fell into a fucking rabbit hole that I want to do a spinoff podcast on this, on this lady. Um, this is fucking nuts. Um, 
Uh, she was born uh, Harriet Pearl Shapiro in Boston. Uh, an early life was filled with turmoil. Uh, her father abandoned her family. Her mother was institutionalized, and she was left orphaned. Um, she was raised in eight different foster homes, spending majority of her early life in the Bronx. Um, it was revealed later that in foster care, she suffered from uh, emotional and sexual abuse, which triggered intense post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, she married her first husband, artist Martin Shaker, in 1944, when she was still a minor. And the main reason she married him was so she can get out of the foster care. So, Ooh, and this, this is this is not pleasant so far. And uh, the it 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 gets slightly better and then a lot worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, yeah. So uh, she made her uh, film debut in the uh, film noir Kiss of Death. She played some uh, playing a bit a bit part as a restaurant uh, restaurant patron. Which led to other Hollywood roles, and she signed a contract with Universal Pictures, where she, uh, her first uh, film for, for Universal was Tomahawk, nineteen fifty one western, um, and then that same year she, um, divorced her husband, and then started. Uh, then she was romantically linked to Keen Hassan of Jordan for several years. Yeah, uh, which is you know that's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, after Tomahawk, um, she was in a bunch of Western and, uh, uh, Western themed movies, such as, uh, The Battle of Apache Pass, Dual Silver Creek. Um, she also was in two other Westerns with Audie Murphy, which is Gunsmoke and Ride Clear of Diablo. Uh, and she was dissatisfied with her film offers and asked to be released from her contract in 1954, where she returned to New York for her stage and started and resumed her stage career. She did a lot of plays and stuff. Um, and then in the late fifties, she got involved in Roger Corman movies where she did, uh, uh, carnival rock sorority girl, the Viking women and the sea serpent and war of the satellites. And she was also in machine gun Kelly. Uh, and then her, uh, she had a lead role in Fort massacre with, uh, uh, Noel McCree. And her last movie, she, her last film role was in uh, 1959's The Wasp Woman, where she, I think she played the Wasp Woman, I do believe. Oh. And uh, she's speaking with the Corman. She said that it was totally, uh, she called it totally mad. It was like a European movie. Though she's, uh, she said she, he's kind of a maverick, very bright and fast thinking. And then in 1964, she had a son named Timothy. In her later years of life, she suffered from depression and suicidal thoughts. And was uh, prey to a wide range of irrational and powerful fears. Um, she was under a licensed uh, uh, psychiatrist's care. And they, uh, uh, f- they found her so troubled and ill that the sessions uh, became so, uh, emotionally uh, uh, draining, is what the psychiatrist said. Yeah, so... That's, yeah. that's she pretty bad. She became increasingly unable to take to care for herself. The interior of her home was littered with trash of, of years and uh, and spoiled food laid everywhere. And then in 1986, um, her mental health uh, deteriorated significantly. Uh, and then, yeah, um, this, uh, despite the squalor of the home's interiors, Cole, uh, Cobalt still managed her. Uh, 
income quite well and still did really well from still kept her funds pretty good and she uh, collected uh, vintage cars which she would restore and resell so that's kind of cool but then in December 10th 1986 her 22 year old son Timothy Scott Roman beat her to death with a barbell wow mm-hmm and there is Sino home uh, he was charged with second-degree murder, and at the trial, Roman uh, it, uh, it testified that his mother had awakened him screaming, not recognizing him, calling him, calling for her mother, Elizabeth. Uh, when he attempted to call uh, emergency services, she attacked him with a barbell and a scalpel. Roman seized the bar from her and beat her repeatedly in the head with it. Uh, he then hid the barbell and scalpel and told the police that a man in a ninja mask killed his mother believing that no one would believe her mental illness. Um, he also suffers from dwarfism. Uh, so, which made it even weirder. All this is weird. And they live in, they live in like a weird squalor. So it's just, it's just, it's just a strange story. This is a Harmony Corinne movie is what I'm not even, here. I haven't got, I'm barely got to the crazy stuff. Uh, well, it just is the crazy stuff, but it gets weirder and stranger. Uh, so, uh, Roman's, uh, defense attorneys claimed that the client's aggression was a reaction of, uh, the mother's attack from the mother attack due to the drugs he took to counteract his dwarfism. That's what they said at the trial. And he was charged with, uh, uh, he was charged with manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. And yeah. And he only, he was in jail for two and a half years and then was released on probation. So that's where I thought the story was going to end with her. It seems like the end. Yeah. Then in January of 2018, the government released a bunch of documents involving the JFK assassination. (laughs) (laughs) Uh You didn't expect that, did you? No. In the JFK files, the CIA had memos about CIA, CIA agents getting an actress for companionship for Jordan's King Hassan when he stay in America. And that actress was Susan, Susan Cabal. Uh, and their affair lasted for years, which resulted in The Sun. Um, yeah. So why was this in the JFK files? Mm-hmm. Well, apparently... The uh one of the one of the agents was who found her was also a private investigator that used to work for Howard Hughes. And he was also related he was also involved in mob stuff, which involved and also had a connection to Fidel Castro. And that was and that was the CIA was investigating the possibility that maybe the uh Castro and the mafia possibly killed JFK. So and that is the end question mark (laughs) (laughs) like i was like i was just i was just doing just a brief little like i just want to know a little bit about her and to see what some other stuff she was in and then i was like murder jfk and i just got in this i i read this earlier today and i was just like oh god this is changing everything and and it's it's a really kind of there's a probably there's probably a lot more to it and it's probably it is a fascinating story and it's such a sad story too, um, mm-hmm. because there there were some articles I saw where they were talking about how like she possibly, like, they think like the son f- flat out just murdered her, but also like she's clearly had some issues. Uh, it sounded like she was having like you know 
PTSD, very much like Audie Murphy would does has, and just like freak out in the middle of the night. And then the son just reacted in the worst possible way due to his weird medication to fight dwarfism. So it's such a weird story. But the JFK stuff, I did not. The CIA and JFK, like this is real documents. Like mm-hmm. this is like, I thought it was conspiracy theory stuff, and I was like, well, wait, nope, this is real. USA Today. I got I got that latter bit from USA Today, which I don't know how good of a resource that is, but it's still more than some random Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. D- Don Siegel was born <laughs> was born in 1912 to a Jewish family in Chicago. His father was a mandolin player. Siegel attended schools in New York and later graduated from. Jesus College, Cambridge in England. I'm assuming it's pronounced Jesus. It's certainly spelled Jesus. Uh, for a short time, he attended Beaux Arts in Paris, uh, but left at age 20 and later went to Los Angeles. He found work in the Warner Brothers Film Library after meeting Ooh. producer Hal Wallace. And later rose to head of the montage department, where he directed thousands of montages, including the opening montage for Casablanca. Oh. What? That's awesome. In 1945, two shorts he directed, uh, Star in the Night and Hitler Lives, uh, won Academy Awards, which launched his career as a feature director. I watched both of them. They're both on YouTube. Star in the Night is a little Christmas uh, uh, thing, uh, and uh, Hitler Lives is a propaganda documentary about how we shouldn't trust anyone uh, from Germany. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, aged uh, fairly uh, interestingly. Um, so Siegel directed whatever material came his way, often transcending the limitations of budget and script to produce interesting and adept works. He made the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956, which has since been described okay. uh, as a, quote, fatalistic masterpiece and a touchstone for the sci-fi genre by The Guardian. It is. I would agree. Yeah. It spawned three remakes and just had countless influence, you know. At least three. Yeah, uh, on other things. For television, and this is something I always forget, he directed two episodes of The Twilight Zone. He directed mm-hmm. Uncle Simon in 1963 and The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross uh, from 1964. And he was the producer on The Legend of Jesse James, which Eli, I defer to you. I assume that's a Western TV show. Well, from, from the era? Okay. Uh, he worked with Eli Wallach in the lineup, Elvis Presley and Dolores Del Rio in Flaming Star, another Elvis connection. Um, and he worked with Steve McQueen in Hell is for Heroes, Lee Marvin in The, in the Killers, uh, and obviously he, Lee Marvin has that... Uh, or was it Lee Van Cleef or Lee Marvin? Who has the cameo in this? Lee, Lee Marvin. Marvin. I, Lee I, Marvin, that's what yeah. I yeah. Um, and then he directed five of Clint Eastwood's films that were com- commercially successful in addition to being well-received by critics. Uh, Coogan's Bluff and Dirty Harry, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, and The Beguiled, and my personal favorite of this bunch, Escape from Alcatraz. Um, mm. And he was yeah. They're all they're all great. They're all yeah. great. Like like my favorite of all those probably switches mm-hmm. randomly. Like mm-hmm. it's it's because it's like I really love Coogan's Bluff, but yet like Dirty Harry's so good. Like all those are mm-hmm. great. It, his cleanest ones, the ones I've probably seen the most, and his crimes have lineup is great. Is lineup the one where they, where they have a really cool shot where they like like push that guy up with the, the wheelchair off like the. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the lineup? That, is it the lineup? That's the lineup. At yeah, the, with the Eli Wallach, the roller yeah. rink or whatever. Yeah, yeah ice rink. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Ah, that's good. So Siegel was obviously a considerable influence on Eastwood's own career as a director, and Eastwood's film Unforgiven concludes with the dedication for Don and Sergio. Uh, he also uh, uh, Siegel also directed John Wayne's final film, uh, The Shootist, which was released in 1976. Also, G- also Jimmy Stewart's in that. So. Also, Jimmy Stewart's in that, and Ron Howard. That's yeah. uh, true. Ronnie Howard. He had a, a long uh, co- collaboration with Lalo Schifrin, or Lalo. Um, I'm not sure actually. I've never said it out loud. First time. Uh, who scored mm-hmm. five of his films? He scored Coogan's Bluff, The Beguiled, Dirty Harry, Charlie Varick, and Telephone. Uh, and Schiffer composed and recorded what would have been his sixth score for Siegel on Jinxed in 1982, but it was rejected by the studio despite Siegel's objections. This was one of several fights that Siegel had on this, which was his last film. That's where Peck and Paul took over for a little bit. Well, don't just give me a second because that's where I'm headed next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have something in here you might not have known about Peck and Paw and their, about their connection. So, because I learned something. Siegel was also important to the career of director Sam Peckinpah. In 1954, <laughs> Peckinpah was hired as a dialogue coach for Riot in Cell Block 11. His mm-hmm. job entailed acting as an assistant to the director, which was Don Siegel, of course. The film was shot on location at Folsom Prison, and Siegel's location work and his use of actual prisoners as extras in the film made a lasting impression on Peckinpah. He went on to work as a dialogue coach for four on four additional Siegel films, Private Hell 36 from 1954, and Annapolis Story from 1955, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which we've already talked about, and Crime in the Streets from 1956. Twenty-five years later, Peckinpah was all but banished from the industry due to his troubled film productions, and Siegel gave the director a chance to return to filmmaking. He asked Peckinpah if he would be interested in directing 12 days of second unit work on Jinxed. By the way, there's an exclamation point at the end of that, so I should be saying, Jinxed! Uh, <laughs> Peckinpah immediately accepted, and his earnest collaboration with his longtime friend was noted within the industry. While Peckinpah's work was uncredited, it would lead to his hiring as a director uh, on his final film, The Osterman Weekend, which was released in 1983. Uh, so I thought that was nice. Uh, I actually did know that, because I, I have read multiple books about Peckinpah. Okay, well, did you know that, uh, uh, I have some other trivia from, uh, unfortunately, David Warner, the actor David Warner, passed away recently. And uh, yeah, he, did, yeah. uh, he apparently, uh, when Peckinpah when Peck wanted to cast him in the Ballad of Cable Hogue, David Warner didn't want to fly over there. So they postponed uh, p- production so that he could take a boat across the Atlantic to get to the U.S. to get and then drive across country. Uh, I thought that was a nice touch. And he also apparently hired uh, David Warner on Straw Dogs, even though uh, David Warner's feet were broken and there was concern that he may never walk again. And David Warner did not explain why his feet were broken and specifically said he didn't want to explain. So I thought that was an interesting <laughs> touch. Um, mm-hmm. Don Siegel was married to actress Vivica Lindfors from 1948 to 1953, with whom he had a son, Christopher Tabori, who went on to be a filmmaker in his own right. I don't have a list of things he did, but I know that he did go on to direct. Uh, and then Siegel married Doe Avedon in 1957, and they adopted four mm-hmm. children before divorcing in 1975. And finally, he married Carol Rydahl, who was the former secretary to Clint Eastwood. They remained together until Siegel died at the age of 78 from cancer in Nipomo, California. He is buried near Highway 1 in the coastal Cayucos Moro Bay District Cemetery. And uh, the final note on the Wikipedia page is that Siegel was an atheist. So I guess I felt like including that. But yeah. When you said he was buried next to the highway, like I assumed he was just Mm -hmm. like in a... In a shallow ditch somewhere. 
Yeah, yeah he, that's why I thought he of might. Too. Yeah, it might not be there anymore. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's Coyotes. That's have Don Siegel. I had a lot on him because obviously he's had a huge career. We'll I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. him again. Uh, I didn't go into every little bit of detail of what he did, but um, yeah, he's a, an incredible filmmaker. Worked in a variety of genres and did excellent work in all of them. So, I guess we should actually talk about uh, Dual Silver Creek uh, instead of uh, I, I want a big tirade on uh, mm-hmm. the craziness of whatever mm-hmm. that Susan Tobolt's alive was. Cabold, but uh, uh, Dual Silver Creek. So, what do you guys think of that? It was what do you, it's 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 the first of the set. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, I think it's it's a little it's a little slight. I mean, it's definitely of a piece with the earlier films we'd watched, but I feel like it has more of an energy to it at times. Yeah. I will say I learned something in the commentary. Apparently the uh opening stretch with like the 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 initial attack and all that stuff like that was all shot after the fact cuz the movie came in too short. And I was like, "Well, that's nice to hit. That's nice to know." <laughs> the Don Siegel turned yeah. into a film that was like 55 minutes long. I was like, "What do I do?" Um but yeah, I thought it was it was Don Siegel's first western, it's the first film he shot in Technicolor. And uh, I think it's, you know, just really solid. Like, he's clearly, he's not the filmmaker that I, he would become, but um, I also think, uh, no. I think it's a, it's a, it's a really solid, like, B-Western. And um, I'm going to, I have one other thing that I would like to say is that, uh, or like to reference is that Quentin Tarantino reviewed this on, uh, on the New Beverly website at one point. It's not on that site anymore, but somebody did put all of them on Letterboxd. And he qual- he called it, quote, a very well-conceived and executed picture, as well as being obviously a seagull picture, which you know I think I would agree with. There, there is some really cool. The, the, there <laughs> it is, is some, indeed a seagull yeah. picture. There is. Uh, there is some better. There is some really cool shots in there. There's one part where they, uh, where it's like they break open a window and the camera kind of goes through. Yeah. It. Like th- there's some really cool shots in this that I, that I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that you mostly don't see in the more the the, the Studio B westerns. Mm-hmm. But it is, and and uh, Audie Murphy's pretty good in this one. He's still trying to find his footing. Um, he became really good. Audie Murphy became really good friends with, uh, and this, the person that really helped him get into the movies as well was Bud Bedecker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he did Bud Bedecker movie around that time. And then I think he just really trying to. I think he's figuring out at this point how this is before Destry. So he's just still he's a little stiff in acting wise. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a little better when the in the the other movies we're watch we're, we're going to talk about. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a, it's a solid it's a solid western. Um, it's probably my least favorite of these three. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, but as I mean, it's, and it's probably not one of my favorite Siegel films either. But it's still still solid western. That's I actually kind of liked his um, his boyishness in this one. Like it works yeah. for the character, I think, because he's. In that prologue, uh, he's kind of charming and uh, sweet, mm-hmm. and he do- he doesn't play that that often, uh, especially in uh, the other two that we watched this week. Right, like mm-hmm. he's he's supposed to be a hard man in the other two, and in this one he had a little softer side to him, although he's turned hard. Uh, you know, because you because he wears black leather, you can tell. <laughs> uh, Turn hard, but uh, yeah, I did think that it was uneven in its direction. There were some very cool moments that stuck out, but then other moments would be flat mm-hmm. uh, and not quite as exciting. And I think Siegel like definitely um, improved as he went on as well. Uh, you know, I 
I would almost say that it seemed like somebody who's um, kind of figuring things out or maybe I would don't want to besmirch him by saying it wasn't one that he cared about as much, but uh, it just felt a little uneven that way. It was a little journeyman quality to it. I mean, he de- yeah, he with def- some occasional flashes. Yeah, he definitely had that. I mean, that was definitely his, you know, uh, lane. I guess you could say for for most of his career was just give me some like as like it said in the uh, rough bio that I had was like, well, yeah, he just would do anything. He would take anything material and just try to do the best he could with it. You know, so I feel like he was. Um, but yeah, I think I don't also think he's still learning learning the craft a little bit and getting getting his reps in. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, definitely yeah. excited to talk about the next, uh, couple though. Um, shall I go ahead into, or no, no, wait, 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 wait yeah, you gotta recommend wait, 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 yeah. and then I gotta tell you where to watch. That's right. Um, I would like to recommend Charlie Varick. It's another Don Siegel film. It's got Walter Matthau in it, who we're about to discuss in a little more detail. Yeah. Uh, it also has Joe Don Baker in it playing basically Anton Chigurh before No Country for <laughs> Old Men. Uh, mm-hmm. it's an incredible movie. Charlie Varick is, is, if you haven't seen it, it's the best movie. It's great. Yeah. If, if you, if you haven't seen it, it is the best movie you haven't seen period. Like it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably my favorite, uh, definitely my favorite Walter Matthau movie. Like, it's like, it's just like, it, it's weird that he's in that type of movie though. Cause I think it's the most different. Of his... It's, it seems like he wouldn't fit, but he, he really, he it really works. Yeah. yeah. Like it's yeah. just perfect. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I can't, it's a, just a whereas like Siegel had been working with Clint Eastwood almost exclusively for several years at that point, and it's like here's something different, and he just crushes it. He knocks it out of the park. So <laughs> can't recommend it highly enough. Eli, where can we watch Ride a Crooked Trail and or? It's yeah. currently streaming on Stars, uh, which Stars 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 uh, is part of Encore. They own Encore, and Encore always had Encore Westerns, which is probably. Like of lesser known westerns, I don't think would exist anymore. They would be completely lost if it wasn't for encore westerns. Encore on, stars has done so much for the western community, the western genre, the community, and all that stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's currently on there. And of course, you can buy the Blu-ray. We've been talking about it's eighteen dollars on Amazon. Like these last for for, for for all three movies, not just the for all yeah. three. Hell yeah! I was yeah, gonna say yeah. that's that's impressive. If you're the if you're the fifth caller, <laughs> you win. If no. no, no yeah, I feel like we're like doing like uh, PBS like mm-hmm. uh, telethon on buying this box set. Um, QVC maybe. Um, okay, I guess let's. Uh, I guess I can. Uh, so uh, next we got Ride a Crooked Trail from 1958. Fugitive bank robber Joe Maybe steals the identity of a marshal and rides into town whose uh, whose judge asks Joe to act as town marshal, but an old flame almost betrays his real identity, forcing Joe to claim he uh, she's his wife. Yeah, yeah uh, directed by Jesse Hibbs and written by the great Borden Chase. Borden Chase! Woo! What, what, what Borden Chase facts you got for us? Literally none. You didn't get any Borden Chase facts? Because uh, you covered so much Borden Chase early well, on in the like show. did like six movies we covered. I know. I mean, I'm not blaming you. The I'm last just... one, I just found a recipe that was called the Borden Chase. That was about all I... 
about a giraffe? What a cocktail recipe. <laughs> I mean, he did have a fascinating life, but I don't want to necessarily rehash it here, especially since we're going long. Mm-hmm. That's true. Eli uh, wrung all of the juice out of Borden. There's probably more. There's probably more I can easily find. Are you, are, do you have anything on any other any other writers? What do you got? Let's no, talk. this is this is the Borden Chase show. I went too long talking about uh, Susan Cabot. Uh so I uh, so I'd pick one actor to talk about, and that'd be Walter Matthau. But I decided not to actually talk about Walter Matthau as much uh, because um, I don't know. He's 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 a famous actor. Uh, I didn't really want to give a whole story because I already talked too long. Uh, but he plays Judge Kyle. So instead, I just found just some random facts about him. Uh, just three random facts. Okay. He serves in the U.S. Army, Army's Air Force, and the Eighth uh, Air Force, four hundred and fifty third bombardment group in England with James Stewart. So he's in. So he's in the military with James Stewart. Isn't that cool? Yeah, he, he once estimated uh, he his lifetime gambling losses at five million dollars. <laughs> That's pretty great. And this one is just for Andrew. Uh, so Josh, cover yours. While making a TV show in Florida, uh, before his movie stardom, he lost a hundred and eighty-three thousand dollars betting on spring training baseball games. Nice. That was that's yeah, all you had on Matt. Okay. Uh well oh I mean I guess we can talk see. more about Walter Matthau like <laughs> like what was your guys' first introduction to him mine was probably Dennis the Menace truthfully mine was uh, it was Dennis the Menace or uh, Grumpy yeah. Old Men or out, out out to sea those those like movies, the odd the odd couple movies. stuff like that was kind of, yeah mm-hmm. that was I just know him as a grumpy old man uh, mm-hmm. but in this one he's weird he kind of comes off it's like I know like. Homer Simpson's voice was originally based off Walter Matthau. Dan, Dan Castanello just doing a Walter Matthau impression, and it's especially mm-hmm. this one. and And I think he what Matthau is doing like a WC Fields impression. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, okay. I I could see that. And I yeah, and that's that's because and they, I mean and early on they kind of did a lot of the comedic roles that Matthau did was very Fieldsy, WC Fieldsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um... One of the roles that I saw him in, um, and it, like he just, I'd never knew that he could do this kind of role, other than Charlie Varick, of course, was uh, Failsafe. Okay. I think he's great in that. And he's he's got these very weird line. Re- like, at one point, he's, like, uh, giving a lecture about, like, uh, like nuclear, uh, you know, what's going to happen when mutually assured destruction, you know, happens or whatever. And he basically is explaining there's this woman who, like, gets turned on by it. And she like she like asked him to give her a ride home, and you think, oh, like you know, he's just like playboy going to parties, making everybody think the world's gonna end, and getting laid by it, uh, and you, like using it to get laid. And then he's uh, drops her off, and she goes in for a kiss, and he just smacks her, and he goes, "I'm not your kind." <laughs> and it's like, weird, Jesus, weird. what is going on here? Weird movie, yeah. I mean, that weird scene in a great movie. It's an incredible movie, but that was always weird to me. Um, yeah, Walter Matthau. Okay, that's all I have. What do you got on Hibbs? Uh. Born in Jesse Hibbs, born in Normal, Illinois. He normal? graduated from uh, Normal, Illinois. Yeah, they're not even trying. Uh, graduated vanilla, and, well, plain vanilla. There, let me tell you, there's nothing about this fella's life that's normal. Uh, if if that's what you're expecting, you better you're not you're gonna be. Surprised. If this Buckle also the ties into up. the if this also ties into the JFK assassination, that'd be that'd be <laughs> awesome. 
he was he he uh, went to uh, University of Southern California, where he was the captain of the first USC's first national championship team in 1928. And among his teammates in 1926 was someone named Marion Morrison, who of course was later known as John mm. Wayne. Uh, Hibbs played professionally in the NFL with the Chicago Bears in 1931. Uh, like several other USC players of the 20s and 30s, including Wayne, Ward, Bond, uh, Cotton Warburton, and Aaron Rosenberg, he entered the film industry and became an assistant director. He got his first opportunity to direct in 1953 on the Tony Curtis football drama, The All-American. He went on to work primarily in westerns, and seven of his 11 features were within the genre, along with much of his television work. He also worked regularly with the subject of this podcast series, Audie Murphy. On westerns such as Ride Clear of Diablo, Walk the Proud Land, and of course the one we're talking about tonight, Ride a Crooked Trail. Uh, he also uh, did the film version, directed the film version of Audie Murphy's life story, Tell Him Back. Uh, uh, and then in later years, uh, Hibbs switched. Uh, Hibbs worked mainly in television, directing 43 episodes of Perry Mason, 28 episodes of the FBI, 20 episodes of Gunsmoke, and multiple episodes of several other TV series. He died at age 79 in Ojai, California. And was abduct, uh, abducted, Whoa. It, inducted into the USC Athletic no, Hall of right. Fame in 1999. Yeah, they abducted his his corpse into the Hall of Fame. So Jesse Hebb's interesting character. Uh, I didn't know anything about him really, but yeah, he only he from 53 to like 59. That was his entire filmography, and then afterwards it was you know all TV. But uh, but yeah. Um, why don't we talk about what we thought of Ride a Crooked Trail? Uh, I enjoyed this one. It was fun. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, th- this one's a very much a, it's a lot more comedic than the, the other two in the, in the, in, in this episode. Um, I don't know, I, Walter Matthau was a nice touch. It, 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 weirdly enough, this one reminded me a lot of 10 star maybe. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was one other movie we watched too. It kind of reminded me of, um, but I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I kind of rated this one fairly high. I think on Letterboxd, I gave it like three and a half to four. I don't know. I I just enjoyed mm-hmm. this one. It was just it was pretty solid all around. Um and yeah, I like the I like the char- the type of character the character type that uh Walter Matthau was playing like the 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 perpetually drunk judge. Like I'm like, yeah, that's like a John and he's, Ford. And he's mm-hmm. quick to like kind murder. Of he kind of reminded me of like Judge Roy Bean. Yeah. A little bit. Well, and like the way the way that like Audie Murphy like uh shoots him early in the opening like the opening scene is like uh they think they immediately think he's a robber. Uh, like an outlaw that they're which after, which he is, and it turns out which he a hundred percent is. And then he even shoot. He goes so far as to shoot Walter Matthau. <laughs> and then when they see the star with the the sheriff's name on it, they're like, "Oh, oh, okay, no, 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 you're you're obviously this person, and you would you would have shot me just to prove a point." You know, it's like, well, all right. So it's very like you know, it's like a tall tale. Like it's fun. I don't know. Kind of like it's like a big. Everything's a little out of proportion. Yeah. A little hard to. Uh, a little there's not like a lot of realism going on um and also uh there is a dog in this that looks quite a bit like uh my dog Lancaster and he enjoyed the shit out of <laughs> very loudly good old uh, paddlefoot is that his name i think so i couldn't hear a goddamn thing <laughs> when they were talking when he was on screen so um but yeah i enjoyed it what do you think josh that's i liked it quite a bit the it, it felt like uh more like a family film in some respects especially mm-hmm. since there was like the orphan kid that he took in oh yeah uh, yeah mm-hmm. and ron howard 
It's not, it's not running. <laughs> it's not, no. <laughs> um, and the kind of the fact that he was flirting with his fake wife all the time mm-hmm. and she was like not having it. Uh, it just seemed like one of those kind of fifties or sixties things that there was going to be the, the big turn at the end where she was like, I liked you the whole time. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's a yeah. lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on on this one. It, I mean, it still had a very simple story, but yet it had a lot of like fun character stuff. I, I like the whole idea of like, he's pretending to be somebody and he's pretending to be married. Mm-hmm. So you have this, this is one I can easily see like, like, a uh like a co- comedic remake of mhm yeah i think well and i think i think this character type at least plays to murphy's strengths like and as a performer yeah. like the he's kind of operating at a remove already but it's because he's got a secret and i think i think that really really works for him and also you know bearing in mind that this is of the films of his that we've watched, this is, I think, the he's had the most like experience going into this one. I think before this, Guns of Four Petticoat was like fifty-seven, yeah. and this is fifty-eight. This, I mean, it's only a year later, but the other ones are all early fifties that we've seen. And I think, yeah, but this and Ford Petticoat, he both he just has a better handle on his like per- screen presence, yeah. you know, like his persona. Um, so I, I like that about it too, and I think it only gets better in the next thing we're going to talk about. But first. I think there's a recommendation to be had. I recommend the TV show Banshee. It was a Cinemax series uh, starring uh, Anthony Starr from uh, The Boys. Um, and it's all mm-hmm. about... Uh, because I, I said I need to finish it. There's, I haven't watched the last season, but I forgot where I left off. Uh, but it's all about this... He's a criminal who's in a, uh, a bar where uh, this guy get, dies. And then he ends up taking, and this guy is, was a is a cop that's getting ready to start a job in a small town as a sheriff, and he just takes his identity. And it's all about him trying to be a sheriff in this town, and he gets like he has like a, a criminal girlfriend who pretends to be his wife. Like there is very much very similar, it really is. Um, but it's very action packed. There's some good siege episodes. It's very western like at times, and at times it's like a normal action film. And it's created by um, I'm blanking on his name. The, it's the, he's a writer too. Uh, he's a novelist. So that um, um, I don't want to say the wrong name. Isn't it Jonathan? Yeah, Tropper? Jonathan Tropper, and he also created the show Warrior, which I think is I love Warrior, which is a mm-hmm. um, which is uh, based on uh, the idea originally idea for for Kung Fu with uh, when Bruce Lee was involved. Uh, and it's and it's such a good martial arts show. Both these shows, I think, are really solid. Uh, I don't know what Banshee's on. I meant to look it up. I think it's on HBO Max. It should be because HBO owns it. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think it's yeah, on Cinemax shows are weird. Like it that was it was on yeah. Prime. It was on Amazon Prime for a while. So I think it might still be on there. But yeah, Banshee's a great show. It's 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 it has a lot of actors that you probably recognize and a lot of other stuff. Cinemax was doing really a lot of good stuff around that time, and uh, it mm-hmm. sucks they don't have like retro, original programming anymore, but. Where is coming back? Uh, con- confirmed, it is on HBO okay, Max. Yeah, according to just yeah, watch. I think it's a good, solid, f- fun. It's weird because like Tropper, or uh, he also did that. Uh, he wrote this is where I yeah, leave you. which is very different. <laughs> it's like this kind of a, like a sadder comedy about like dealing with death and a family. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I would do a kung fu TV show, and it's just <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. Uh, this one so. Uh, if you want to watch Ride a Cricket Trail, it's currently streaming nowhere by the Blu-ray. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. it comes with two other movies that are worth owning. Yeah, for only eighteen dollars, I've heard. Yes, 
Um, it can be yours. But that now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So next. So that brings to us our, to No Name on yeah, the Bullet. Our last movie for the evening. It's from 1959. No Name on a Bullet. When a hired killer, Joe Gant, rides into Lords, uh, Lordsburg, the, the townsfolks become paranoid at each other. Leading citizens, uh, leading citizens has enemies capable of using the service of a professional killer for personal revenge. This is a I. This is probably the first Audie Murphy movie I've seen. I think because I've always heard it was so good. I remember tracking it down in like when I was in college. I think mm-hmm. me and Andrew watched it in college. I remember doing that. Um, yeah, it's it's so it's such a like this is the one that like I'm surprised no one has remade this. Like I truly because like you can make a good stage play out of this too. Like it's such a uh, it's such a good personal type of just paranoia. You don't see a lot of paranoia westerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think um, it definitely like uh, not to jump the gun too much, but I, like it's it's just like really there are things that have like uh, explored similar themes that are very popular and very well well known, and I feel like this one for whatever reason isn't as uh, I mean it's it's obviously regarded as one of his better westerns. I, I think yeah, like like you were saying, I think it was my introduction to him as well. But uh, there's a yeah, book. There's a book yeah. by Audrey Murphy called No Name on a Bullet. So I mean, it's. It, mm-hmm. I think it is kind of regarded as his best movie. Mm-hmm. It's because it, I mean I'll give it like it's such a good idea for an idea too because it's all about a, a hired killer who uh, mm-hmm. he doesn't pick fights with. What he does is he kind of just shows up in an area, and his reputation itself. He doesn't. He kind of just kind of picks fights with people. Then he's always the first. He's always the first one to shoot him because he's fast draw. So that's all it mm-hmm. is. Like it's, everything he does is in self defense, technically. Technically. So, and I, well, such a smart idea for a killer too. Like for with the idea that yeah, just because he's shown up in town, every they everybody knows like he's here to kill someone. Who is he here to kill? And they're like, or who brought him? Yeah. And it's like, so it makes everybody distrust each other, but also be afraid of him. And so everybody's on a uh, razor's edge whenever he's around too. I mean, it's. Uh, and he's obviously just, you know, he plays it all cool. Again, this is the one I think that it's his best performance in anything that we've seen of his so far, because I think this is like, he's keeping everything back. He's holding everything back. And when he lets it loose, it all, honestly reminded me a bit of Jimmy Stewart. He has a line where he says like, uh, uh, somebody's like, he shoots a gun out of someone's hand and they say, why didn't you kill me? And he just goes, because I wasn't paid to. And that's the first time like he kind of shakes, like he kind of gives you any emotion really at that point. He just played everything so cool. And it's like there's this kind of resentment to it. Like I, this is the job I have to do. It's just, it's so well done. And it's just, a, it's a great movie. So what? who who wrote this bitch? Well, this bitch was written by Gene L. Kuhn. Uh, Gene was like a super talented as a youngin. Uh, he started singing on the radio at the age of four. He could sing in French and German. Um, he was a Marine. He got training as a war reporter and that really honed his writing skills. Uh, he mostly wrote Western and adventure shows, including wagon train and, uh, the Destry TV series, which he was also, he was also producer on that. Uh, but He's probably best known, and Eli, you might know this, 
uh, for his run on Star Trek. The okay. the the OG. He wrote uh, thirteen of the episodes from the first two seasons. Um, I believe he wrote four more from season three. Uh, he's he's the creator of the Klingons. He's okay. credited. He's credited with bringing huh. a lot of the humor to the series. Um, he he rewrote a lot of the scripts that came in because he was basically like what a showrunner is now uh, after Roddenberry left uh, to go do the Robin Hood TV show that ultimately failed. Um, he left Gene Kuhn in charge. So he was overseeing all the scripts that came in and he was taking care of them to make sure fixing them up. Basically, and he came from Wagon Train, which like Star Trek was seen as like oh, it's Wagon, Wagon Train, train in the stars. Space. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, which his... Lucille Ball thought it was a uh, Star Trek was a USO uh, variety show. <laughs> she she was involved in like early on in like the production mm-hmm. company, and that's what she thought it was. That's what one reason she helped greenlit it. <laughs> um, so. His assistant said that basically after a couple years on the show, he was living on amphetamines to try to keep up the pace. Um, he officially left the show, uh, but he still continued to do rewrites and submit scripts under a pen name. Uh, a lot of fans referred to him as the forgotten Gene uh, because he was over overshadowed by Gene Roddenberry uh, on their They had a long term partnership. Uh, they wrote other movies together after Star Trek. Uh, they also developed new series together that didn't get off the ground. Like Genesis uh, 2. Yes. Uh, and uh, this was before he passed away at the age of 49 due to lung and throat cancer. He was a, a lifetime smoker, lifelong smoker of cigarillos. Um, but they said that... Uh, he visited the nuclear testing site and that also might've been a contributing factor. So yeah, I can see that. Yeah. You'll have that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool. I, 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 the Star Trek connection actually makes a ton of sense. Yes. It does. Yeah. Cause even like the, the whole paranoia of like, I can easily see, like, I think I have seen a Star Trek episode. That's kind of this. Mm hmm. Uh, the, there's an episode of Gunsmoke this reminds me of that was before this, where it was all about like um, uh, Sheriff Matt Dillon is uh, he's he's in a situation where like some uh, he killed someone in self defense uh, and the brother of someone's coming after him but he doesn't know who the brother is. Then there's just one scene. It's a great scene. One of the fa- of all the episodes of Gunsmoke is my favorite episode. Uh, where they're in a they're in a restaurant and and uh, Sheriff Matt or Marshal Matt Dillon's looking around thinking of anyone in, in this place is there to kill him, while Dennis Weaver is just talking about uh, coffee and how how to make coffee and his favorite way to make coffee, and it's such a good <laughs> like you have this kind of comedicness of like Dennis Weaver and with just the paranoia around it and it just works it's just a great scene it really is, and um, yeah I recommend Gunsmoke. Right. No, that's not our, that's not our uh, recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think it's understood that we recommend Gunsmoke. <laughs> um, well, how about uh, what do you have? Is it, does that wrap us up on the on the writers? Yeah, it yeah. was just it was written by him, story by uh, Gene Alcoon, written by him, and 
uh, yeah, he was had a really good, solid career. He packed yeah. a lot into his 49 years there. He did a whole lot of movies, mm-hmm. but I mean, he only did the, 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 the Quester tapes. Yes, with Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uh, DC, uh, DC Fantone, Fantona, whatever. Fontana. Fantana, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, for right. Oh, he, he did Man in the Shadow. Okay. Which is also uh, directed by Jack yeah. Arnold, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> and uh, or some else. <laughs> um, yeah. So for cast. I was going to do R.G. Armstrong because uh, he's one of mm-hmm. my favorite character actors and a big Peck and Paul guy. But then I figured we'd get to him anyway. So the only thing I so and also did so much other stuff. Uh, so the only information I wrote on here is that he's actually five years older than Charles Drake, who's playing his son in the movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, I would have thought R.G. Armstrong was on the younger end because he's been, he was in movies for so long afterwards. I mean, he, yeah, he was like, I thought he just always looked old, but he, yeah. he still was, he still was, but he was just slightly older mm-hmm. than the, the, than the guy playing his son. <laughs> so. Well, the, wasn't Charles Drake in, uh, um, Winchester 73 as well. Uh, yes. He was Steve. Yeah, he was Steve. So we talked about him before. Yeah. yeah. I was, was going to um, do him. And I was like, Oh, we talked about him. So mm-hmm. what do you got about Arnold? Uh, well, uh, Jack Arnold was born in New Haven, Connecticut to Russian immigrants. Mm-hmm. As a child, he read a lot of science fiction, which, you know, lay, laid the foundations for the films he'd go on to make that are some of his more well-known works. He hoped to become a professional actor, and in his late teens, he enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where his classmates included Hume Cronin, Betty Field, and Garson Kanan. Okay. Uh, after graduating, he worked as a vaudeville dancer. In 1935, he began getting roles in Broadway plays. He was acting in My Sister Eileen when the Japanese attacked Pearl Pearl Harbor, and he immediately enlisted as a cadet for pilot training. He intended to become a pilot, but a shortage of planes meant he was temporarily placed in the Signal Corps, where he took a crash course in cinematography. He then became a cameraman and learned the techniques of filmmaking by assisting Robert Flaherty on various military films. After eight months of Flaherty, he became a pilot in the Air Corps, and while stationed at Truax Airfield in New Rochelle, New York, he met Betty, who would later become his wife. After World War II and the end of his term of service, he formed a partnership with an Air Squadron buddy, Lee Goodman, to form a film production company. And their new company, called Promotional Films Company, made fundraising films for various nonprofit organizations. He also continued acting on stage in plays, which included a revival of The Front Page, and he played opposite Bella Lugosi and Elaine Stritch in Three Indelicate Ladies. Ooh. Yeah. Um, by 1950, after his documentary films had received more exposure, he was commissioned to produce and direct With These Hands, a documentary about working conditions of the early 20th, 20th century, and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. So it follows a similar trajectory to Don Siegel in that regard. Uh, and then Arnold directed a number of 1950s science fiction films, again, for which he's probably best known. Uh, uh, it Came From Outer Space in 1953, Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954, Tarantula from 1955, and The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, uh, among others. But uh, they were all noted for their atmospheric black and white cinematography and sophisticated scripts. Uh The Incredible Shrinking Man is considered his masterpiece, according to this Wikipedia article. Really? 
uh yeah uh, i don't, I don't think they've seen it's, this movie I, well yeah well it's very different uh but um it was uh i thought that was an interesting note and then his main collaborator at universal studios was producer william Allen, and revenge of the creature uh, which I'm not sure if he directed or just produced, but it was Clint Eastwood's debut film. Of course, Clint Eastwood would also be in Tarantula, which Arnold did direct. Uh, he also made some non-sci-fi films. His best Western is often considered to be No Name on the Bullet, which is what we're talking about. The film was shot in color in CinemaScope and was later restored from the original negative for airing on the Grit digital broadcast channel. Whatever that is. I've never heard of it. Um, he later directed The Mouse That Roared, in which Peter Sellers played three roles. And then he began his television career in 1955 with several episodes of science fiction theater, directed uh, episodes for Perry Mason, Peter Gunn, Alias Smith and Jones, The Fall Guy, Nanny and the Professor, The Brady Bunch, Gilligan's Island, Wonder Woman, Ellery Queen, Mr. Terrific, Mr. Lucky, I guess they're different, and the San Pedro Beach Bumps, as well as the TV movie Marilyn, The Untold Untold Story. Uh, he died of arteriosclerosis in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California, at the age of 75. Later that year, the UCLA Film Archive held a tribute called Jack Arnold, the Incredible Thinking Man Film Festival. <laughs> that's that's uh, they screened it. <laughs> they screened a number of films and they produced a documentary uh, about his life, which is also called The Incredible Thinking Man. Uh, I would like to watch it. I'm not sure if it's on that Criterion release of Incredible Shrinking Man or not, but uh, that sounds fantastic. Um, Yeah, that's Jack Arnold for you. Yeah, His movies are fun. Uh, Probably some of the most different different type of movies he's known for than than Mm -hmm. most of the Western directors we've talked about. But yeah, Yeah. I definitely recommend all of his stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and he um he definitely did uh he directed Man in the Shadow, which I watched somewhat recently because I've been trying to watch all of Orson Welles' stuff as well, and he Orson Welles is in that. Um, I believe he shot it around the time, uh, same time as The Long Hot Summer and uh, Touch of Evil, uh, which is interesting because the characters he plays are all uh, in all three are kind of like you know, uh, 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 patriarchs gone to seed to a certain okay. extent, especially yeah. in Long Hot Summer and uh, and Man in the Shadow. Man in the Shadow is. Uh, He's like a it's it's a pseudo western. It's somewhat set in modern times, I believe. Is kind of it's just in a rural area, but it definitely hits like you know Orson Welles is a baron who a cattle baron who uh, you know lords over a ranch, and um, in the in the film there's a uh, uh, I believe it's his daughter has an affair with with uh, 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 someone that he doesn't approve of a native uh, uh, either Native American or Mexican ranch hand. I can't. Remember. It's been a minute since I've seen it. I think it's a Mexican ranch hand. And then the Mexican ranch hand gets killed by his enforcers on the ranch. And uh, there's a sheriff played by Jeff Chandler, who is awesome uh, and was uh, uh, died way too young. Um, and he uh, he you know basically goes toe to toe with Orson Welles trying to uh, get, you know, justice. So, yeah, um, Jack Arnold. Uh, and, yeah, we've already talked a little bit about how we felt about No Name. Yeah, Arnold. watch I it. What, I mean, almost, event- Almost certainly of, his best. Yeah, of, yeah. of any ones we do, this one's solid, and it's it's short. It's like what, like seventy eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think you, people listening can probably already tell. Like we're so energized by this particular movie compared to some of the other ones we talked about. The Not that ones. the others are bad. Not that the others are bad, but this one is so good. Yeah, this like, one was excellent, <laughs> and uh, I I mean the story was really good and gritty, kind of in that classic. Uh, almost noir 
sort of way, which I love. Mm-hmm. Like, it's seriously, like, this is also one that I'm, like, people should, someone remake, like, get a good director behind this, you can make a remake of this, and it would be like, like, get like A24 or something like, like, you know, get one of those, like, you know, RC Studios, and this would, like, win awards. I feel like you could, I mean, something like, um, like uh, Breaking Bad or Better Better Call Saul, especially the 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 parts of Better Call Saul that focus on uh, on Mike and and the drug trade and Gus and all that stuff, like the the more te- the more suspense filled crime aspects of it. They really like the suspense they're able to tease out of just the most minor interactions and the most like seemingly mundane things. Like I feel like they're as influenced by something like No Name on the Bullet, the, the creators of that show and the people running it, as as anything else. I mean. Um, I don't think that's too big of a stretch. No. You know, obviously it's not a Western, but um, the way they, you know, have, you know, someone like uh, Mike, who's Jonathan Banks' character on the show, he's the kind of, per- he's like, he's like Audie Murphy's character in this movie. He walks into a room, you know, like, okay, this guy knows, or even Gus, you know, Fring. It's like, when they walk into a room, they have like this energy about them. And you're like, okay, everything has changed right now. We don't know what's going on. And so, you know, obviously it's played to a very specific effect in this movie, but you know, that's the kind of thing that, um, that's also, I should stress, that's not what we're recommending right now, though. I believe, Josh, you have the official Stagecoach Justice podcast recommendation for pairing with this. I do. I recommend uh, The Twilight Zone in general. Uh, I mean, a lot of this plays like a parable. Uh, and I think a lot of what Gene L. Coon wrote um, kind of falls under that same camp. Uh, he probably would have been... Uh, of a like mind with Rod Serling. So, and actually we discussed one, but I have two specific episodes uh, that Serling did write uh, that I think really would pair well with this. Uh, So, you know, almost the same length (laughs) as this short movie. Um, (laughs) The first one is the season one episode, the monsters are due on Maple street, um, which is about, uh, uh, one block of of a town tearing itself apart uh, and everybody accusing each other of various things. And I don't know, it just, it pairs very well. I think the, the paranoia and mm-hmm. the, who's the real villain here, which is an explicit <laughs> discussion that they have in No Name on the Bullet. Um, you know, who is really doing the worst? That, that scene uh, with the with physician is I think is excellent. It's one of my favorite parts of that movie. Uh, the second one I want to recommend is Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, Ooh. which I I think mm-hmm. fits in also. Uh, also, it has Jack Elam in the episode. <laughs> Give you me know, Jack Elam. <laughs> uh, it's a season two episode. Um, although it was like. 60 some episodes <laughs> into the show's run <laughs> that's still season two in those days mm-hmm. um but yeah i think both of these really exhibit that kind of very special american exceptionalism like that everyone thinks that they have and the paranoia that would go along with someone knocking you off your pedestal and what is my neighbor doing is is he trying to one-up me in some way shape or form mm-hmm. so i yeah, so no. I was just looking up uh, uh, Gene L. Uh, Kuhn mm-hmm. to see what else. He wrote The Killers, the Don Siegel movie. Yes. And uh, wow, also yeah. did the, uh, which I got to watch this one, uh, the uh, James Conn Western Journey to Shiloh. 
Oh yeah, the Kino Lorber put that yeah. out not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was just looking at something of course read my favorite Martian. Hmm. That's cool. Oh, my favorite Martian. The will the real Martian please stand up. It's all everything's coming it together. Is. It is. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. Um well that takes us, I think, to, to this week's episode of Stagecoach Justice. Am I am I right? Uh yes. Or Wait, where do where can people the watch it on the bullet? It's not Sorry. streaming. The Blu-ray. Blu-ray. It's it's Get on DVD Blu-ray. too. I mean, it's all free. it's all pretty yeah. cheap. Get it. Watch it however you can. Do it. Uh so, uh last week since it's season 2, I'm going to do the the I'm going to I'm going to continue doing what I did last week with the Stagecoach Justice recaps. Of the real show, because okay, it's new listeners for listening now, whatever. Okay, uh, so Stage Coach Justice <laughs> is uh, um, there's a real show uh, from, it was on in late late fifties, early sixties called Stage Coach Justice. That was a big influence on our on our side. It's it's insanely hard to find. It's it's a real show that I did not make up, but it is a completely real show. So uh, so I like to give a little recaps on the, the different episodes on there, and I'm gonna play a game again. This is another game. The song playing right here, maybe. I don't know, or not. I don't know. For long. Uh, so, this is season one, episode 11. And this episode is called A Horse Promise. What do you think the plot is for A Horse Promise? This is where you should play the song. So, you're cut out mm-hmm. in the time that yeah, we're thinking. Like the Jeopardy music, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I had another song. I would. I think. Uh, um, I think it's an episode about a kid who promises a horse that uh, he will never like let like it's like a family that has you know a ranch with horses and this kid bond you know he loves this one horse especially mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of bonds with the horse and he says like I'm never gonna you know leave you I'm never gonna like we're never gonna sell you we're never gonna you know get rid of you and then the family falls on hard hard times and they have to get rid of the it's horse. A horse promise and. Uh, and he he made a promise to the horse. That's that's how it's a horse promise. And he uh, event we we jump ahead in time, which already I already know this isn't what the episode is because there's no way a show at that time would do something like this. But we would jump ahead through time, and he would he would reconnect with the horse eventually. It's War Horse. It's I I said okay. it's, it's War okay. Horse. It's okay. the plot of War Horse. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I see where uh, you're coming at. Oh. <laughs> oh, contraire, Andrew. The episode is actually about. A, mm-hmm. a riderless horse uh, strolls into town, but it still has uh, saddle and saddlebags on it. And when uh, Big Jim Johnson Branahan is going through the, the contents of the satchels, he finds a, a man's letter home to his family. And it was a promise that he's going to bring a bunch of gold and he's going to rescue the family from poverty and actually buy the land that they're sharecropping on. I like that one. I feel like that's close. That's at least closer. There's no way mine was it. So um, I mean, Josh was pretty close. Josh was you're pretty close. You still don't win a, a, a salt lamp. Salt lamp. Uh, but mm-hmm. okay. You want to know where is the salt lamp? Isn't it? Is it in the mail on the way to me? Or did I? I lost last week, didn't I? I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know. Uh, so okay. Let me bring up the way back machine and look on here and see what. Okay. So horse promise from episode eleven. It is about. 
a um big jim johnson branahan uh uh horse runs away and he goes rouse his horse back up but one of his horse but one of his horse has a branding on it so someone trying to steal one of his horses and uh so and he and he starts investigating why someone's branding his horses but he also gets accused of stealing horses so horse problem huh interesting Mm-hmm. it's yeah. not as clever i'd rather watch josh's i would rather watch josh's uh-huh. too i think it's well that's done, a better yeah. one but this one's literally like, i don't know why it's called a horse problem i think we should i think we should delete this segment and write that uh, <laughs> i mean no but because it, it, it's all about so it's 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 just about a guy it's about his horse gets to, uh, it's his horse is, he, his horse runs off gets separated from his, his stagecoach he goes to get the horse and it turns out his horse is branded by someone else. It's 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 about horse thieving. Mm-hmm. It's not a very good episode. <laughs> it's really not because uh, uh, it's it's I don't know it. it not all well, not I'm all co- episodes I'm, can be I'm winners. Copywriting. I, There's a reason this show Justice isn't has like officially... super well known, and it's not because I State... I made it up because I didn't. It's a real show. <laughs> the podcast is copywriting a horse promise by Joshua uh-huh. uh, Ickes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, story by story by Josh Wick is screenplay by all three of us. We'll we'll work on it uh, between podcasts mm-hmm. going forward. Now that we're catching okay. up, okay. A horse promise. A horse promise. A promise. Promise from a horse. So what's uh, <laughs> next week on States Go Justice? Next week we are doing uh, three films. Yes, and three Again. films only. Um, I it's, it's doing... kind of a lot doing three movies. Like uh, part of me yeah. is like, why are we doing three movies? Because I originally thought, well, these are short movies, but it's still three mm. movies, and they're only yes. twenty minutes shorter or ten minutes shorter than like you know normal movie runtimes. <laughs> so <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So the three movie. I'm trying to look up the the years. Oh, I have them because I don't. Uh. I don't uh well, it's okay. it's from the. Uh, ahead, it's though. all the, it's films he did with uh, director Nathan H. Uh, uh, Duran. Yeah. yeah. Uh. It's it's the nineteen. Uh. It's the nineteen fifty three film Gunsmoke, starring, uh, starring Audie Murphy and Susan Cabal. So keep that in mind when you're watching it now. Mm-hmm. Uh. All the horribleness you've gone through. Uh, murdered by JFK. Uh, and then the 1953 Tumbleweed, which is another fun one. And then the 1954 film Drums Across the River. If you want to oh, okay. watch along with us, Gunsmoke is on Stars. Um, but it's only on DVD in France and Australia. So, like, if you're there, huh. you get a copy. But it is it is streaming on uh Stars. Tumbleweed was on Stars, not anymore. But I found it in its entirety on YouTube. So. Watch it on YouTube. How's the transfer? Pretty, pretty good. Okay. Not as good as what it been on Stars, but it probably is a version of Stars. Uh, and then uh, Drum Across the River is on Stars. And I've right. noticed uh, France. There's a lot. A lot of these are released on DVD in France and Australia. I don't know what it is about Audie Murphy, but they definitely. Well, France, the, the the French love westerns, especially fifties westerns. The, they're big champions of those, and they've always have been since they came out. So yeah, that's it. well, didn't a lot, didn't a lot of his uh, uh, I know we'll get to it next week, but didn't a lot of his wartime heroics take place in France? Maybe yes, he actually he actually has yeah. he won a war he has war medals in Belgium and France as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that doesn't hurt. No, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so that that, that I guess that concludes uh, this week's episode. This week's inc- incredibly long episode of State Scoot Justice. It will be. It is long, and and it will. It, it's uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, um, you can sh- check out. I have another podcast getting ready to come out. If it's not already, I don't know when this comes out. I don't know when anything comes out. I don't know what time it is. Uh, called OVA tonight. I'm doing with David, uh, my buddy David Codwell. He's a, a artist. Um, you can check it out. It's about anime, uh, which just like westerns, every way. No, it's just about obscure west. It's about obscure uh, 1980s direct-to-video anime. It's great. It's weird. Uh, it's shorter. It's a lot shorter. It's about like 30 minute episodes, 30 to 40 minute tops. Uh, check out the re. Check out the reenactment on iTunes, Amazon, everywhere you can purchase or rent movies. Yeah. And buy my Clint Eastwood book. It's called The Clint Eastwood Reader. It's on Amazon. Please buy the Kindle copy. You get it faster, and I get more money from it. Yeah. Have you ever figured out how to get that money from Amazon? Yeah, they, they send it to me every once in a while. But it just, I mean, I've, I think I've made a grand total of $103, which is, like, not bad. I yeah. Mean, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. For that dumb book, don't buy his book. No, buy don't my buy book. It. No, Give me a hundred. That hundred and fourth dollar, I'm, it puts me into a higher tax bracket. Buy buy the Kindle and the paperback copy if you really love him. Yeah. Oh no, the agent of chaos. Get it sent to him and and get it signed. Mm-hmm. He will sign your Kindle. He <laughs> will, will sign your Kindle. I, I will sign it. I will sign your Kindle <laughs> and I will send it back. Yeah. Um, Josh, what you got? Oh, you can listen to me on my other podcast, Nashville CA. It's a bi-weekly, bi-movie podcast by two guys from not opposite coasts, because I'm not on a coast. Uh, I mean, maybe Andrew should take over, actually. I'm, I, I'm, on, it's, I'm on a coast, but I'm, uh, it's, I'm the west coast of Florida, so it's still mm, kind of the mm, west coast. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, screw you then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we did just drop a, I mean, it's be a couple weeks ago now because i'm in the future uh but eli was a guest uh on the show we talked about the jordan peele's new movie nope uh and we had Which a, really has good a lot to do with westerns it, it does. does and yeah. the, and the scorpion king yeah <laughs> which i've never seen really no it's no, got some it. horrible cgi it does well uh, wait hang on no hang on you're thinking of the mummy returns that oh, is true. The Mummy Returns does have the bad CGI. I've seen yeah. the Mummy Returns. That has the bad. That's the famously bad Scorpion King shows up okay. in that. In the Scorpion King movie, he's just a regular dude. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what a great thing to have said out loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, thank thank you all for listening. Uh, I am enjoying this series, even though if it sounds like I'm not, I am. Yeah, like, are, yeah. I movies. mean, they're not as like we weren't watching the greatest westerns ever made, like we were last season. But I mean, it's just we're watching the real westerns. This is the ones that like <laughs> no, there were so many of these. These ones, these were huge box office movies. They really were. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Audie yeah. Murphy. Audie Murphy, everybody, plays out. Gene Altry. Oh, uh, Audie Murphy did do music, by the way. Thank you. Okay. Oh, okay. Spoilers. It's only a spoiler if I can find it. I'm a tenderfoot who never saw a cow, never roped a steer, cause I don't know how, and I sure ain't fixed.
sent to start in now. Yippee-i-o-ki-yay. Yippee-i-o-ki-yay. I'm an old cow ham from the Rio Grande. And I learned to ride, for I learned to stand. I'm a riding fool who is up to date. I know every trail in the Lone Star State. Cause you ride the range in a Ford V8. Yippee-i-yo-ki-yay, yippee-i-yo-ki-yay.